we are not going to wait until someone is harmed about this. We are going to hold the person accountable for their choices. And we are going to make sure that we create an environment where people can make choices that are supporting our vision, supporting our mission within that space. And those two things together will do our best to create you know, a zero harm environment, knowing though that there is always luck and there is always human fallibility where harm could happen. But we are doing our best to remove the systems part of it and the human choices part of it to the best of our ability. Welcome to the Learning to Change podcast, where we uncover the transformative power of learning through the modern learner's lens. I'm your host, Melissa Emler, and in this special four-episode series, we'll be exploring the concept of just culture with our guest and returning friend, Julie Stevenson. Julie Stevenson, Director of Culture and Learning at Southwest Health, is more than a healthcare professional. She's a lifelong learner, storyteller, and someone who deeply values connections. Known for her spirited use of language and her insatiable curiosity, Julie brings a unique and engaging perspective to our discussions. Whether it's her passion for coffee, thrift shops, or her humorous insights on daily life, Julie's approach is both refreshing and relatable. Over these next four episodes, Julie will take us through the essence of just culture, a system where fairness, empathy, and shared accountability are paramount. We'll examine how this culture has transformed her hospital, shifting from punitive responses to understanding and addressing root causes. We'll also look at the challenges of implementing just culture from overcoming resistance to change to fostering a blame-free yet accountable environment. Julie will shed light on the nuances of mistakes, at-risk behaviors, and the value of curiosity and systems thinking in this context. Get ready for a compelling journey into how just culture can reshape workplaces, enhance employee engagement, and improve service quality. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Julie. So good to see you this morning. How are you? I am doing well. It's great to be back. And I am excited to talk about Just Culture. Yes. So you're back because I got so much feedback from people who were listening to the show and said, oh my gosh, this is such an important conversation in the equity work that we're doing in our schools and organizations. Um, mm -hmm. And so they asked me to dig in a little deeper and that's what we're going to do today. So it might feel like we're gonna peel back the onion a little bit in order to go forward. So let's just sort of get started with defining just culture. What What is it, you know, what is the process of sort of getting it started and then Maybe how is it different from other organizational structures that people sort of put into place? So let's just start. What is it? Let's review. Okay. Well, Just Culture really ultimately at its core is about shared accountability in organizations. So it refers to a model, right, of, of accountability that drives continuous improvement and is um, supportive of an organization's values. Um, and it's a, a culture or a model that the organization takes accountability for the systems that are designed and how the organization responds to behaviors. 
And it's a culture or model that holds individuals accountable for the quality of their choices um, within the within the just culture framework. And the quality of choices really considers what humans um, have in common, right? Is that like we're fallible, we're going to make mistakes are going to happen. But how do we make sure that we're driving improvement, um, building human capacity and not striving so, for that unreachable idea of perfection? All of that is a complicated mix of systems, people, accountability, and it makes for a really fun and interesting way to uh, sort of rethink how we talk about behaviors and organizational accountability. For me, what makes it stand out in listening to you as a little bit different is um, lots of organizations talk about culture and they do culture building activities and culture building work and they're often like laying the foundations of the culture they're hoping to see. But what strikes me as different is the connection of the individual people and their contribution to culture. And I think that it, it's more than just the culture piece, right? It's it's looking at all three of those things that you mentioned, the systems, the people, and I, I can't remember what that third thing was that you said. Okay. How you're accountable to them. That's just it. So it's culture with accountability um, and a development of the human that contributes to the culture. That mm -hmm. is really important. And I don't see that in a lot of other frameworks. So I'm curious, can you just tell us a little bit about how Just Culture came into the work at Southwest Health, which is in our audience is not just um, in our region, but mm -hmm. Southwest Health is a what do you call it? A rural Criti critical access hospital, small, yeah, small rural so hospital. Mm -hmm. You're in a small rural area, but it's critical access to get people what they need. So tell me, how did the work of Just Culture enter into Southwest Health System? Really, the beginning was about let's you know let's say five years ago, and we've had COVID in between those five years. Um, so like any cultural change, it takes a it's, it takes a long time. So our journey started about five years ago, and really the journey just started with we have a cult cultural initiatives here. We want to be the employer of choice. We want to be a high quality healthcare organization. And we want to make sure that people are getting safe and high quality care. And one of the ways to work toward safe, high quality care and employee engagement is to make sure that we're working toward this sort of big aspirational vision of zero harm in healthcare, which again, that's like I just talked about. It's like striving for per, per, for perfection, which we know is like, again, aspirational. It's probably never going to be attained. And it's a worthy effort, right? So in order to make sure that you are providing high quality care and taking care of the people that give that care, you have to have an accountability system that doesn't punish people for being humans. Historically, and based on you know the country that we live in, our justice system is typically a little bit more punitive minded than how are we being just about these things? How are we making sure that people are actually not being punished for just their infallible humanness? And so if we're going to work towards zero harm, we have to also work toward making sure that we're not causing harm to the people that work within our organization by expecting them to be perfect because we're they're just not perfect. We can shoot for perfection and aspirational goal of zero harm without saying you have to be perfect. Um, instead, we need to have a, a better design around the systems, a better understanding of why and how humans behave the way they do, and how do we 
um, bring those things together to create a just culture. So you've been on the journey for five years. And where are you and what are sort of the next steps to getting to a just culture? So we took a COVID detour and COVID actually showed so many cracks on why thinking from a fairness and justice perspective is something that we want to do because there was so many glaring opportunities to see injustice during COVID that um, it made me even more inspired. And I think other people in healthcare are even more inspired to be like, how can we create more just systems? <laughs> because we can see where um, there's glaring inequity, right? So right now we're kind of in that rebuilding because we had just started right before COVID um, and things just sort of got tabled during COVID. Uh, I've recently been recertified in Just Culture. I um, have been trained by the Just Culture company. So I'll just give that a shout out. I They are the experts. I'm just someone who's um, learning and gleaning from them. And we are in the process of getting our managers and directors reacquainted, retrained with the background and framework and getting them re-establishing a, a relationship between uh, what they do and how they lead to just just culture and and what that means about updating processes, you know, their practices with how they engage with their um, staff, their own leadership practices, examining all of that, because it really isn't just an easy thing you start using. It, it requires you to kind of rethink how we've thought about accountability, maybe ever in our whole life. Right. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about why it is such a kind of mind melting thing to think about, because it's not typically the kind of culture that we've been um, brought up to understand. And so it takes a while to sort of shake up your brain enough to be able to start to go like, okay, how could I actually implement this into my practices, since it's really me taking kind of a 180 approach on what I thought I knew about accountability. So what I hear when I hear you talk about that is essentially you're working, first of all, everybody in the organization is learning, which is always mm -hmm. in a moderate through the modern learners lens, sort of the most important work when we want change to happen. And what else strikes me is it feels like you're working to close the gap between what we want to be and what we actually do. And in my work in the field of education, there's often a gap. We're usually trying to close an achievement gap, but the gap that really needs closing is the gap between what we believe and what we want to see in our culture and what we do. And I always find that it's really important to start that work with um, getting grounded in the vocabulary and the lexicon of the work. And I believe that all change is linguistic. So let's dig into a little bit of the vocabulary connected to just culture and see where that takes us in terms of building our understanding of, you know, just how much we have, how much work we have to do and how much learning we have to do. Let's yeah. start with vocabulary. I think you're absolutely right. Just culture is aspirational. It's never, we're never going to be there, but we can be working toward it. I think that's just like justice in general feels like that. So it is sort of evolving every minute. So we'll never be there. So learning is going to be the foundational part of it forever. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you bringing that up. In terms of language, 
I'm mean, looking at it through the way that I was taught and that it's sort of like a, a overlap of four key things. And so I'll, I'll just talk about those. Um, the first thing being sort of how we set rules and have laws and justice. And this is in the, you know, recording in the United States, we are um, part of the America's sort of justice system. So it requires us to understand what guides our decisions, how laws are made, how rules are made, who judges those decisions. Um, so they call it American just prudence in the um, like the, at the high level that they talk about it. But really, it's it's kind of asking the questions: Why do people think certain things are really important? What makes those things matter so much? Right? Like, what what was the rules? What were the guidelines that makes those things matter? Um, what does it mean to be fair? To be right? And then um, what does it mean to have a process for how we can defend what is fair and what is right? So mm -hmm. that's the first and probably the biggest kind of complex thing to think about is how do we assign fairness and rightness to something? Who decides those things? And where do those ideas of fairness and rightness come from? So the second component, and so again, there, you could put this in sort of a Venn diagram to see where these things overlap, would be human beings and the factors that um, arise when humans interact uh, with the things around them, with the tools, the machines, the technology, other people, their environment. So what are the human factors that help us make sure that things are user-friendly, efficient, safe, understanding that humans think, behave, and react differently in different situations based on the very, very complex histories that humans have, right? Um, so we have to be able to do our best to make sure if these are the things humans have to interact with, how do we know that they are operating optimally and that they are designed uh, to impact our performance and well-being in a um, just and positive way. When you talk about that from the modern learner's context, that seems to be the context part of our lens where we get really clear on our beliefs. How do we believe people learn most powerfully and deeply? And then the context is what what's impacting that learning? What's impacting mm -hmm. the humans that affects their beliefs about learning or how they approach learning? So that's really interesting when I think about all the pieces that go into how human beings interact with their world. Mm -hmm. We have often talked about the importance of understanding context. And if we can't understand the context, sort of the drivers behind what is happening um, in the humans we're serving or working with, then we are really missing an opportunity. And often that's when the gaps happen between what we believe and what we do, because we don't account for all of those factors that impact that. Yeah. And just to go a little bit further on, like it, it, it impacts what we do. It also then impacts what we punish. And yes. this is where this comes into play, right? Because so often there's opportunities when we're like, no, we've given you the tool and you're not doing it. Well, if I've never seen this tool before, or if this tool is something I've engaged with in the past and had a really negative experience with, and I don't see that there's a path where this is going to be any different. Um, and, and the accountability of making sure that the organization is doing its best to know that humans are interacting with these things. So it's not just as simple as like, hey, pick up the hammer and do the work. Uh, if I've been hit by a hammer every day for my entire life, I might feel differently about that, right? So it's like, how do right. we how do we understand and, and work with that? 
All right. What's next? The third one. <laughs> well, the third one is um, they use the term behavioral economics. And um, it's really looking at and understanding how people make decisions and choices. So it's not just about money. When I hear the word economics, I think about money, but it's, it's really not like just about money. It's more in general. There's sort of this assumption that we all act like super logically and objectively um, and that we make choices based on what's, what's best. And really that's not true, <laughs> right? We don't make choices in this sort of like linear logical way. The behavioral economics part of it really is helping us all to understand that we will act and do act a bit irrationally because we follow feelings. We are feeling beings who make mistakes. We make decisions based on feelings a way more than we think we do. Mm -hmm. So it's essential for us to really figure out why we do that, when we do that, what we do. Um, and even if it always doesn't match what people think is a logical way, we have to understand it because it's the reality is this is how people behave. So it kind of the, the behavioral economics part of it answers the question, like what is actually driving and inspiring individuals to do what they do? How are they motivated? So it's a little bit different and it asks us to understand different ideas than we've ever kind of believed. We have to question our own objectivity. We have to question this idea that like, of this is where you and I have had multiple conversations about the idea of common sense. People do, there isn't like a common sense. People make all sorts of decisions based on all sorts of um, motivations. And so how do we understand that using this idea of understanding behavioral economics? So I like the language of behavior economics because I also think that uh, there's a there's an element of power underlying uh, behavior, like depending upon how you respond in a certain situation can either increase your personal power or an organization's power or it can decrease it. And some of those norms are determined by, you know, are determined by the norms, which are typically set by the white middle class expectations of what is appropriate. Yeah, I think that, I mean, yes, to all of what you just said. And I think this is where the behavioral economics really overlaps with this idea of who sets the rules and who judges them and who gets to punish for them. The American justice system was not created for and by everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And so to your point, it was created with an understanding of who mattered, who mattered the most, uh, what what mattered the most, property, things like that, right? Like, so there's all of these contradictions within it that are hard for us to, since that's what we've grown up in understanding, it's hard for us to then bring into our workplaces something that is a bit more strategic versus hierarchical and um, a bit more compassionate than punitive. And so, yeah, you're hitting on all sorts of how power dynamics play into all of this, uh, you know, stew of how do we try to work toward the aspiration of a, a culture that is more just in our workplaces. What is so interesting, as you and I have had many conversations about just culture, is just the overlap of so many things. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing overlaps with the vocabulary, but also with the system. So you're living in a healthcare system in America. I'm living in most often in an education system, but this language, the aspiration of doing no harm is aspirational across systems. And mm -hmm. I'm very thankful that 
um, I'm having the opportunity to work through this with you and hopefully inspire those of us in education to look towards uh, just culture as we continue learning and growing. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about um, jurisprudence, we've talked about the human being interactions, and we've talked about behavioral economics. And then you said there was sort of a fourth vocabulary big idea piece that comes into the Venn diagram. So what's next? So the next part is how are we uh, engineering the systems, right? System engineering. So healthcare is a complex system. Education is is a complex beast. So how are we doing our best to engineer it versus just react within it? Um, because ultimately, because so many of our systems were created not in a space of just culture, we have to sort of redesign and re-engineer if we want parts and people to work well and smoothly together. We need to not just write like try to correct this one behavior of this one person, we need to examine how it all fits together. And so system engineering, that, that perspective is how, do, how are we working seamlessly? How are we making sure that the entire system is working well versus like one part is working harder than the other? It's constantly managing the system and engineering these systems um, be, because if we don't, the system will sort of default back to this punitive, inequitable situation where there's sort of, you know, people that are being harmed in different ways. And so the, the, the question it kind of answers is how, how can workplaces and the systems and the processes within those workplaces be designed to actually contribute to satisfaction of employees, a better quality product, like you said, and actually like working toward not just satisfaction of employees, but the well-being. Okay, so the real question that I have is going back to the systems engineering piece, I relate this to what I often talk about inside of the system that become competing commitments. Mm -hmm. So like in complex systems, there are systems within systems. That is very challenging to manage and work through. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens is that systems within the systems tend to end up in competition with each other for money, time, resources, um, in order to sort of improve their system within the larger system, right? Mm -hmm. So, so in education, we sometimes have assessment competing with instruction. They need to not sort of be separate, right? Mm -hmm. They they are all under the same system, and we all try to. If we are assessment people, we try to go all in on assessment. Well, you can't assess learning. Uh, assess learning for learning, as learning, of learning, however you want to say it. You cannot assess learning without high quality instruction or the high quality instruction will have an impact on the end result. So, you know, it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. And ultimately, what is really important is that our systems sort of set that aspirational vision of no harm. I don't know in any of the systems school systems, the field of education, I don't know what the aspirational vision is in my field. Mm. And I, it maybe and hopefully there are systems 
leaning into just culture, even in our education field. But I'm not sure what the aspirational piece is. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's learning for all. But again, going back to the vocabulary, we have a hard time defining learning. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think it's really important to think about, to, to hone in on that systems engineering piece and to make sure that when you're engineering the system, that you're aware and cognizant of the competing commitments of systems within the systems so that you can get to your aspiration um, of no harm. So. I, I just want to try, and I might not do this well, but try mm-hmm. and clarify some of what you just said with like an actual like thing people are like, what the F are you talking about, right? Like, yes, so, thank you. <laughs> so, so like, let's just imagine a kitchen, right? The mission of a kitchen is to create food and whatever, right? So a kitchen is a collection of things with the mission of creating food, right? Um, but when you bring a person in, right? It turns the kitchen not into just a collection of things. It becomes like an active system. And a blender is its own kind of system. A refrigerator is its own kind of thing, right? So once you start to, once you bring a person in, it's not just a, a space with a collection of things with a, with a mission to create food. Once I come in, my mission might be I only prepare vegan meals because that's important to me. So my kitchen is going to look very different than someone whose mission is to uh, cook nothing but meat, right? Someone who's a, right, like a, a, a grill master. Those might be two completely different missions. The walls and some of the systems within it are going to be the same. We both probably need refrigerators and we're both going to need knives and we're both going to need some of these things that we don't necessarily, I don't control how the refrigerator system functions. I control how the collection of those things function as it interacts with the work I want to do in that space. So when you think, so that's just one small room with a collection of smaller systems, and then a person coming in with their mission and their values. My mission is to cook food and make sure that I can eat, but my value is cooking it from a vegan perspective or whatever that is. I, I want to use less plastic because I my value is environmental sustainability. So I don't cook uh, or I don't, I don't use single use plastic as much as possible. I make sure I know for sure how far my food has come into my kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. So now imagine, right, like a school, or a hospital, which again, the building and all of the tools and all of the things inside it is just like a collection of things until people start coming in and engaging with those things. And all of those people come in with different, sort of the same mission, probably it's to teach kids or probably it's to do zero harm or to take care of patients or whatever that thing might be. But we each have different values that we come with and that impacts our behavior, that impacts. But if, if the value is I want to get kids into an Ivy League school, assessments might be real important to me. And high quality uh, instruction is probably real important to me. But maybe it's not about like making kids feel seen and heard. Right. Who knows? I'm, I'm just saying, right? Yes. We have to understand the people within those systems and what they value. And how are we like making sure that there's a shared value point, whatever the shared value is. Right now, healthcare, zero harm is one of those things. Um, because there's been a lot of harm that's been done because systems haven't been interacting well with humans. And then that's punitive. And there's not only harm then to patients, but also secondary harm to the individuals who are working within systems that don't work well, doing their best, and then being penalized for that. And it makes for a very tense 
situation, right? People don't know, can I bring myself to work or do I have to bring this perfect person to work? And none of us are that. And, or if we believe that we are still that perfect thing, that means we hide mistakes, we hide imperfections, which means we will harm our peers, maybe harm the people that we are serving, students, patients, like whatever that might be. So if this idea of perfection is someone, something someone still buys into, there's a lot of harm that can be done. And if the person understands I am a fallible human, I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm within a system that doesn't allow for that. What do I do then? So it, it becomes this really tense scenario. That is fantastic. You helped make sense of those competing commitments perfectly. And I think you set us up for the next episode in our series. But before I close out this one, I'm not going to leave people hanging because the other thing I want to come back to is the concept of well-being mm-hmm. and um, what organizations can do to sort of support well-being. And you and I have had a lot of conversations about sort of the performative activities that organizations are doing to sort of support their employees and to support their mental health or to support their well-being. But what we've talked about is there are not systems in place to support well-being. So let's talk about uh, just culture as a possible solution or support for the concept of supporting well-being in the workplace. Yeah, I would say it's a, it's definitely a support. I think at this point, um, the systems are too complex and the problems are too sort of like this wicked problem scenario for anything to be one a solution. But I think right. just culture definitely can support this idea that without safe, both psychologically and, you know, physically safe spaces to go in and work in, we are creating conditions where people are afraid. We are creating conditions that um, in our workplaces where worker mental health and well-being is being like backburnered. This is why so many people, right, like burnout, we know is really Mm -hmm. prevalent in healthcare. I think we know it's also prevalent in education and other these big systems that have sort of not necessarily always examined or taken on this way of thinking or learning. You know, so so like I was gonna say, I think, you know, healthcare, we know there's burnout, teachers, a lot of teachers leave within the first five years, because they get into a system that they thought was one thing when they were a student within it, being served by the system. And now they're sort of a cog in the middle of it. And it doesn't feel quite the same bit of safety. And so I'm not an expert in any of this, but I often go to the Surgeon General's most recent work on how we're going to create, you know, workplaces that are are good for mental health and well-being. There's five components. And one of the first ones is protection from harm and both psychological safety and physical safety. So how are we making sure that our workplaces can provide psychological and physical safety? Well, this is one of them. How are you examining and engineering the systems within them? How are you helping to understand what motivates the people that are working within those systems so that if they are motivated to do something that might be out of their best interest or the best interest of a staff member, that they're reconsidering or that they have some sort of obstacle in place that avoids that as much as possible? How are we helping to understand the human factors? What Like, if are we having people come in exhausted because it's just the way the work is? Well, then we almost have to expect someone's going to be harmed. We can't have exhausted employees, right? And how are we making sure that we are not, again, using a system of justice that is based on punitive outcome-based 
measures, instead behavior-based. So what I mean by that is, um, and I'll just use a, an example I think anyone would be able to understand, and this is used in you know a lot of the Just Culture conversations, but so if you are um, a person who is in a car accident because you are driving under the influence of alcohol and that car accident leads to someone's death, you are going to be held to um, a different outcome likely than someone who got in their car, drove under the influence and made it home safely just out of pure luck. So the behavior is the exact same, but we are punishing someone because of the outcome. And that is what just culture is trying to sort of flip on its head. How are we doing our best that regardless of outcome, we are helping people make fair and just and right decisions in those moments. So they are acting on behalf of themselves, their peers, the patients or the students. Um, and we're not waiting until something terrible happens before we say like, well, why did that bad thing happen? Oh, well, because we've overlooked this behavior for years, because we aren't looking at behaviors and said, we just wait for outcomes. To me, that is us just, right? Like, not just to me, but like to people who are trying to to do this work, right? Like waiting until someone is harmed to examine it doesn't feel like zero harm. It feels like, I guess I hope you're not the unlucky one. Right. I don't feel good about that for patients. I don't feel good about that for students. I don't feel good about that for anyone, right? I don't want luck to be the thing that brings, I mean, luck is already the thing that is, right, like sort of always wavering over top of us anyway. But I don't want someone's behaviors that have just been ignored, encouraged, allowed, knowing that they are potentially reckless, potentially um, leading to harm. But we've just not had the words, had the ability to say, what are we going to do differently? Because we are not going to wait until someone is harmed about this. We are going to hold the person accountable for their choices. And we are going to make sure that we create an environment where people can make choices that are supporting our vision, supporting our mission within that space. And those things to those two things together will do our best to create, you know, a zero harm environment, knowing though that there is always luck and there is always human fallibility where harm could happen, but we are doing our best to remove the systems part of it and the the human choices part of it to the best of our ability. That is fantastic and absolutely a great place to stop for today. So uh, thank you for being with me and we will have you back. Um, we're going to do a whole series on just culture. So you will be back with us for at least the next three episodes after this one. And I really appreciate all of your contributions and we will chat with you soon. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It was fun to be here. Thanks, Missy. Have a good day, everyone. Don't get in trouble. Thank you for joining me today on the Learning to Change podcast. I hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. As we continue to explore the power of learning and its impact on change, remember that it's not about pushing yourself or others to change, but about embracing the process of learning. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're ready to take your learning journey to the next level or bring about a culture of learning in your organization, join us in our free Modern Learners community. We are here to help you navigate the challenges and celebrate the successes that come with embracing learning and change. Simply go to modernlearners.community and join us today. 
you'll find all the resources from today's show in there. Until next time, stay curious and remember, I'm not asking you to change, I'm asking you to learn. Learning to Change is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blaser. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Learning to Change is recorded on the stolen land of the Sauk and Fox tribes, the Miami Nation, the Osati, Shakawi, Sioux, Ho-Chunk, and Kickapoo peoples.